if you to turn with me in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 8, I'm going to read this section for you. Uh, because I want to speak without a great deal of reference back to it, and I think it's useful then to have some context uh, for the message this morning directly from the Scripture. Revelation chapter 8, beginning in verse 1. I'm reading from the New International Version, uh, so you can make adjustments uh, depending on the version that you're using. I want to remind you that there are free copies of the NIV New Testament on the back table, and you are more than welcome uh, to take one if you'd like to do that. Revelation 8.1, When he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Imagine what it would be like for half an hour. And I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel, who had a golden censer, came and stood at the altar. He was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all God's people on the golden altar in front of the throne. The smoke of the incense, together with the prayers of God's people, went up before God from the angel's hand. Then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar, and hurled it on the earth. And there came peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. Then the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to sound them. The first angel sounded his trumpet, and there came hail and fire mixed with blood, and it was hurled down on the earth. A third of the earth was burned up, a third of the trees were burned up, and all the green grass was burned up. The second angel sounded his trumpet, and something like a huge mountain all ablazed was thrown into the sea. A third of the sea turned to blood, a third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. The third angel sounded his trumpet, and a great star, blazing like a torch, fell from the sky on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters turned bitter, and many people died from the waters that had become bitter. The fourth angel sounded his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that a third of them turned dark, a third of the day was without light, and also a third of the night. As I watched, I heard an eagle that was flying in midair call out in a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth because of the trumpet blast about to be sounded by the other three angels. The fifth angel sounded his trumpet, and I saw a star that had fallen from the sky to the earth. The star was given the key to the shaft of the abyss. When he opened the abyss, smoke rose from it like the smoke from a gigantic furnace. The sun and sky were darkened by the smoke from the abyss. And out of the smoke, locusts came down on the earth and were given power like that of scorpions on the earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth nor any plant or tree, but only those people who did not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They were not allowed to kill them, but only to torture them for five months. And the agony they suffered was like that of the sting of a scorpion when it strikes. During those days, people will seek death, but will not find it. They will long to die, but death will elude them. The locusts looked like horses prepared for battle. On their heads they wore something like crowns of gold, and their faces resembled human faces. 
Their hair was like a woman's hair, and their teeth were like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron, and the sound of their wings was like the thundering of many horses and chariots rushing into battle. They had tails with stingers like scorpions, and in their tails they had the power to torment people for five months. They had a king over them, the angel of the abyss, whose name in Hebrew is Avadon, and in Greek is Apollyon, that is, destroyer. The first woe is past, two other woes are yet to come. The sixth angel sounded his trumpet, and I heard a voice coming from the four horns of the golden altar that is before God. It said to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the four angels who were bound at the great river Euphrates. And the four angels who had been kept ready for this very hour and day and month and year were released to kill a third of mankind. And the number of the mounted troops was twice ten thousand times ten thousand. I heard their number. The horses and riders I saw in my vision looked like this. Their breastplates were fiery red, dark blue, and yellow as sulfur. The heads of the horses resembled the heads of lions, and out of their mouths came fire, smoke, and sulfur. A third of mankind was killed by the three plagues of fire, smoke, and sulfur that came out of their mouths. The power of the horses was in their mouths and in their tails, for their tails were like snakes, having heads with which they inflict injury. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues still did not repent of the work of their hands. They did not stop worshipping demons and idols of gold, silver, bronze, stone, and wood, idols that cannot see or hear or walk. Nor did they repent of their murders, their magic arts, their sexual immorality, or their thefts. It's difficult to read the judgments of God that come in these end times and think of His grace and of His patient loving kindness toward unbelievers. But that's actually what's being portrayed here. We read all of these judgments, and they are, in essence, portraying the compassion that God has right up to the end. The Scripture says that God desires all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. And that He wants every single human being on the planet to come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. That that is His goal. And in His mercy, He is providing opportunity even in the eleventh hour, even in the last days. He's providing an opportunity for repentance and a chance to turn and find salvation. I want to dwell this morning primarily on that mercy and grace of God, but before we focus on that, I just want to give a brief overview and highlight of the trumpets and the bowls, because um, the mercy of God is seen in the juxtaposition of these two series of seven plagues, and there are some interesting similarities between them. On the back of your outline, if you have not already discovered it, there is a chart, and that chart uh, includes a, a brief synopsis of what happens with each of the trumpets and each of the bowls. You might ask yourself the question, how is it 
that people can experience these locusts and see these strange horses that don't look like anything they've seen before and and have uh, trumpets sounding and having bowls being poured out and seeing uh, a mountain-like fire cast into the sea and all those kinds of things and not recognize God's hand in it. One of the things that I want to make you aware of as you read Revelation is John's perspective is heaven. John is in the throne room. And what he is seeing as he looks down upon the revelation that God is unveiling for him is a heavenly, supernatural, spiritual perspective. Friends, there are demons in the world today. There are some in this room. You don't see them. But they're doing their work. They plant thoughts in the minds of people. They bring distraction. They present temptation. They uh, offer all kinds of alternatives to the will of God. They cause, in some cases, sickness. They cause emotional distress. Uh, They create all kinds of problems in the world. I'm not saying that every one of those problems is a demonic problem, but I am saying that demons can cause all of those problems. We have a mixed bag right now. Uh, Some of it is the natural consequence of fallen human beings and the consequence of sin. But in that consequence of sin, we kind of uh, sold out to the devil. And as a result of that, um, his demonic spirits roam the earth seeking to ensnare believers. Um, I don't know if uh, you ever read C.S. Lewis's Screwtape Letters. But it's a pretty good portrayal of how uh, the supernatural works against believers. Now, my point is, we don't see those demons. We, they don't take shape and form, but they do their work and we feel the effects of them. And if we had a supernatural heavenly perspective, or if we could have our eyes open and, and the curtains drawn back, uh, relative to what's going on in the unseen heavenlies and in, in the atmosphere around us, we would be able to recognize that in this room this morning, there is a population of heavenly angels and a population of evil demons sitting alongside and among us. And John is telling the story from that perspective. So I go back to my question. How can people experience these things and see these things and not automatically recognize the hand of God? And what I believe the case is, is that they don't actually see these things. They experience the effect of them. What could cause a third of the ocean, a third of the rivers to turn to blood? Some kind of infectious process that killed all of the sea life and uh, caused the fish to rise odiously to the surface and, and bleed out, as it were, some kind of hemorrhagic virus among the sea life. And some scientists would come up and say, well, this is what's happened and we've got to find some cure for this. What could cause a, a, a forest fire that would consume a third of the earth? 
Well, one of those California fires gone massively globally wild. And someone could say, well, it's because we haven't had rain and there's been worldwide drought and we've got to come up with an explanation for this. In other words, men will be able to put a construct upon these events that is rational to them. Rather than recognizing the hand of God in judgment, they're going to look at the unfolding of these events and they're going to say, we're suffering a pandemic. We're suffering uh, dry atmospheric conditions. We're suffering earthquakes and, and an increase in um, tsunamis and all of that kind of thing. And they're going to put a natural construction upon it. And even though there's a massive loss of human life, people are going to find a way to explain it away until, as we get further into the book, it becomes obvious that they're doing battle with God. And when that point becomes obvious, they're ready to take Him on. That's what's utterly amazing, is that they're ready to take on God eventually. In fact, Revelation, as it begins to unfold, somewhat reveals to us some of the motivation for that man of sin, the Antichrist, to rise to power. The earth is going to be in such a mess. There's going to be so many disasters. There's going to be so much illness. There's going to be so much death. There are going to be so many problems that that the whole world is going to be looking for someone who has an answer. Someone that can straighten it out. Someone that can make some sense of the mess. And that someone is going to come to the surface empowered with supernatural evil power to bring some resolution, some temporary cure, some uh, fix to the problems. And the whole world is going to hail him as a savior and a deliverer. Because he's going to solve, at least in the short term, the problems that we're facing. So I want us to understand that God has given us the revelation for the purpose of us not being deceived. We need to be able to read the papers, to listen to the news, to interpret events along the lines of revelation, and to understand somewhat where we are in the process and not to be deceived or or confused by it. God loves His people. He wants us to be aware of how the end is going to come. The Scripture says, You are not ignorant, my brothers, concerning these things. And we should not be. We should be aware of that. Another thing that, that I want to bring to mind as we look at chapter 8, it's a very fascinating beginning. All of a sudden, we're in the same heavenly altar, uh, heavenly throne room that John has described in Revelation 4 and 5. But now all of a sudden we discover there's an altar there, and it, it's a golden altar, and it has four... Uh, Four horns, uh, which are kind of like um, ram's horns sort of things on the corners. And there are seven angels that have never been mentioned before that stand before the throne of God. And, and you say, uh, you know, wait a minute. 
he never mentioned those before. Where did they come from? He talks about these seven angels like they were always there. The seven angels who stand before God. Well, he didn't mention them before. And what we're seeing is an unfolding revelation to John as he his attention is drawn to new focal points in this huge mural of the end time events. Two things that we need to, to keep in mind is that all of these events are not particularly chronological. You can't put them down in a linear sequence. John gives us an unfolding of what he saw, and then it's like he steps back and he sees something else, and he explains that, but there may be overlap, or one may be before the other, or they may be embedded within each other, as I explained to you a couple of weeks ago, and we'll see it again this morning in the in the seven um, seals and the seven trumpets and the seven bowls. So you need to bear in mind that as John reveals these things to us, he's revealing them as he sees them, not particularly as they occur in, in sequence. Now, obviously, the sets of seven occur in sequence because they, they follow a logical order. There's the first trumpet, the second trumpet, the third trumpet. But we will discover that the bowls are wrapped up in somewhere in the fifth and sixth trumpets. And so, John lays those things out for us. The other thing that, that uh, I want to mention to you is that uh, eyewitness testimony is very curious. I did a little bit of research on eyewitness testimony, and I found out that in the, uh, there's a group that seeks to in investigate people that have been convicted of crimes and bring uh, freedom to those who are wrongly convicted. And in one study, um, they examined 259 cases where there was a conviction based on eyewitness testimony, which DNA exonerated. And it was proven that these people did not commit the crimes that eyewitnesses said they saw them commit. And they went back and dug into the research a little bit on this concept of eyewitness testimony. And what they learned was that 73% of people who were absolutely, totally convinced they saw what they saw and will swear under or oath that that's exactly what they saw and that's the person are wrong. They didn't get it right. There was some suggestion. There was stress in the event. There were other things. There was uh, the, the expectation that this must be the guilty party because that's who they arrested. And they merge their experience on top of that. And the result is that eyewitness testimony is not so reliable. And particularly if there's a weapon involved, it becomes even less reliable. Why am I telling you this when we're talking about revelation? You tend to see what your focus is drawn to. 
And that tends to be the main thing that you see in the moment. I had a friend of mine who was a National City police officer, and he was off duty one time when he went to a uh, filling station convenience store to make a purchase and just happened to walk in on an armed robbery. Off-duty officer, and yet he felt compelled to do his duty, and uh, he attempted to apprehend the criminal, and he said, I found myself on the ground with this guy shooting at me. And fortunately, the guy was a bad shot, and Carrie was a quick, uh, quickly able to move the two, and God was gracious. But he managed to avoid getting shot. But this is what he said. He said, the only thing I remember was the hole in the end of the barrel. That's all I saw when I was on the ground. Why would that be? Because that's the most important thing in the picture. (laughs) Staying out of the way of that black hole. That is the number one objective in that scenario. And nothing else mattered. It was life and death. John's attention is drawn to the drama of the moment that is being pointed out to him. And then, it's like he steps back And another drama begins to unfold, and his eye is drawn that way. Now, with John, there's no inaccuracy because he's writing under divine inspiration. But, even as he writes, he is only writing what captures his attention in the moment. As God unveils and reveals these things. And so, as you read Revelation and you make a study of it, these are the kinds of things that you need to bear in mind. God is giving us this sweeping mural of what is going to happen in the last days. It has application to the church of John's day, just as it has application to us, even if these are not the very end days. But, there is this overview of end-time events. And it's like looking at a mural on the wall where you you go look at one section, then you go look at another, and then you step back and try to get some perspective, and then you go over there and look more closely, and you say, wow, there's just almost too much here to take in. Regarding the trumpets, there is a similarity between the trumpets and the bowls. But this is my main point. You can take this home and study it in more detail later. This is my main point with this. As you go through the trumpets, and can we just kind of fast forward through those, Kate, please? Thank you. You notice the one-third, one-third, one-third stuff that keeps popping up. In the set of trumpets, there's only a minor percentage, 33% of the earth or of people being affected. When we get to the bowls, (laughs) there's total destruction. And so as you look at the comparison between the two, while there are similarities, in many cases what the trumpets began, the bowls complete. And why would we 
be interested in that. Because we need to recognize that the loving kindness and patience of God is in the warning trumpets. Trumpets in Scripture herald things. They were used in wartime to dispatch different squadrons of soldiers. It would be the trumpet blast, and that was used uh, up until recently in the Revolutionary and the Civil War in our country, where the trumpet sounding, the bugler, was very important to announcing the the commander's direction to, to the armies, how to move, what to do, whether to retreat, whether to advance. You couldn't hear the voice across the field of battle, but you could hear the trumpet. Trumpets were used to warn and announce that disaster was coming. Prepare. Get ready. And in the end, it will be a trumpet that heralds the rapture of the church and and our calling up heavenward to meet our Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with Him. The trumpet is a warning instrument a preparatory instrument, one that says, get ready. And God, in the sounding of these trumpets, is actually sparing two-thirds of everything. Yes, it's horrible that one-third is being destroyed. But it is a blessing that two-thirds are being spared. God is long-suffering, not wanting anyone to perish. He wants them to hear the good news. He wants them to know that He loves them. And so He constantly extends His grace. Go all the way back. Go back to Adam and Eve in the garden. And what did God do? He provided a covering for their sin. He came to them in mercy and provided a covering for their sin. Interestingly enough, made by slaying an animal, spilling its blood and covering them with the garment that remained of the coat. And Noah's day, how long did Noah build an ark? I mean, you talk about a warning sign. Here's this huge boat. Our property is 400 feet deep from Bull Valley Road to the very back tree line. The ark was a little longer than that, much wider than this building. Um, Noah built it largely by himself. Wow. It took him decades upon decades to build this ark. Here's this ark. Dry ground. I I don't know if they knew what a boat was or not, but I presume they did. It wasn't like there wasn't any water. Noah, what are you doing? You're building this huge boat. There's not a river in sight. There's not a lake around. And where are you going to float this thing? And Noah is preaching and testifying of the grace and the love of God, warning them. The Scripture says, right up until the end. You notice that when the floodwaters came and the rains began, that it was God Himself who shut and sealed the door. 
Because I think Noah in his compassion would have had a hard time doing that. But God said, I've been speaking to them for over a hundred years and they didn't get it. So now's the time. And so he sealed the door and shut out all the unbelievers. But he gave them a century to repent. He gave them an opportunity to come to faith. Look at the Canaanites where Abraham wandered in his early years and how the Israelites went to Egypt for 400 years and why did it take so long? Because the iniquity of the Canaanites had not reached the finality of their judgment. God waited over four centuries, 430 years, for the Canaanites to get it and repent. And they refused to listen. And then the Egyptians, God gave them plagues to get them to turn their hearts. And Pharaoh, time and again, hardened his heart against God and would not bend. But God extended His mercy. In the the judgments of Judah and Israel with Babylon and with um, Assyria, God gave opportunity and Assyria fell first. I mean, uh, Israel fell first to Assyria. And God said to Judah, wake up if you don't change. That's going to happen to you. And they refused to listen and they were overrun by the Babylonians. And yet God was merciful. And then He sent Jesus, His only Son, to whom first? To the Jew first. And also to the Gentile, because he longed for his people. Even though in his omniscience he knew they would not repent and turn, he longed for his people to come to faith. And now he waits patiently. And friends, when we come to the very end of time, as the judgments of God begin to rain down upon mankind, it will not come immediately in a devastating total destruction, but it will come gradually that some will open their eyes and repent and believe that they will come to faith. Are you aware of how God brings people to repentance and turns their hearts? God's methods in motivating change, according to Romans 2.4, Paul says, do you not know that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? Make no mistake, friends. God's method of turning our heart is, first of all, loving kindness. He makes His rain to fall on the just and the unjust. He makes His sun to shine upon the just and the unjust. He feeds the just and the unjust alike. It amazes me after all the Bible has to say about it that so many people, when bad things happen to them, say, what did I ever do to deserve God's judgment? It's like, don't you get it? That's not God's judgment necessarily. I'm not saying it never is. I just want us to be aware of the fact that God's number one method of bringing us to repentance is to bless us. He wants to do good things for us. He wants to overwhelm us with His goodness so that we say, Oh Lord, You love me so much, I want to follow You. That's His passion. 
We have enjoyed the fruits of a nation that don't reconstruct history and try to write out the Puritans and and the very foundations of this country that were based, at least in some uh, godly uh, sense. Yes, there were a lot of deists in the early fathers of the nation, and yes, there were all kinds of uh, crazy uh, things that people thought and believed, but don't lose sight of the fact that this land was formed and fashioned by people who desired to be able to worship God freely and without uh, opposition. And God has blessed this nation. We are the wealthiest nation on the face of the planet. The poorest among us are miles ahead of the middle class, if there even is a middle class in so many countries of the world. The poorest among us have more than most of the people in the world. The the amount of disposable income we have is incredible. Our blessings are amazing. Look at what we have. And God has been saying the whole time, I love you, I'm blessing you, I'm honoring you. And what do we do with it? We spit in His face, we turn our back on Him, we go our own way. We take His goodness and we turn it to our own selfish ambition. And we pursue our own godless ends to be little gods unto ourselves. But time and again, God still blesses. That's His first choice. And when bad things happen, recognize we live in a world that is full of sin and decay and disease and disorder and selfishness. The consequence of sin. Bad things happen in this world. But not because God is punishing us individually, but because we live in a common collective of the morass of sinfulness, and it's God's goodness that keeps shining through. What do you think sustains us? It's the goodness of God that sustains us. His method is to give loving kindness. He blesses the unbeliever in common grace and in particular grace. To motivate repentance and faith. He only resorts to judgment when other means have failed. A lot of times when people are being judged for their sin, they're simply reaping the harvest they sowed. It's not so much that God is punishing them. It's just that, well, you sowed the seed. What did you expect to get out of the harvest? You know, if you sow oats, you get oats. If you sow thorns, you don't get oats. You're going to get thorns. That's just the way it works. God is still merciful. He says, bring your thorns to me. Bring your mess. I'll save you. I'll I'll restore you. I'll redeem you. We must remember that even in judgment and tribulation, God loves people, sinful people, among whom we all once were.
You know, it's so easy for us to sit back and look at ungodly sinners and say, wow, look at those dirty, rotten sinners. Look at their filth. Look at that drunk. Look at that drug addict. Look at that murderous member of ISIS. Look at those ungodly people that are radicals and intent on destruction. Look at them. Did you know that people followed Hitler right into Nazi Germany, believing that they were doing good for mankind? So much of the effort that they were making was to rid the human race of bad genes and bring pure genes to the pool so that they could improve humanity in general. And people bought the lie and walked right into it. One of the most common things from the average person on the street after the war was lost by Germany and there began the reconstructive process with so many of the average German people could not believe they had been so deceived. They could not believe they had been duped. All of a sudden, scales had fallen from their eyes and they saw things for what they were. And they were horrified that they had participated. I remember one... uh, woman came and testified to us of of her experiences growing up in Germany. And she had this to say as as a German, now American. She said, I was so ashamed. I was so ashamed to be German. I was so ashamed to be a part of Germany. So ashamed. And yet, in the midst of it, so proud, so confident, so bold. The thing that we have a hard time seeing is, in retrospect, we can look at certain events or we can look out at certain events happening today and say, that's horrible, those are ungodly people, they're wicked sinners, they're they're bums, they're addicts, they're the, the dregs of society and fail to see that but for the grace of God, there go I. Only the grace of God has opened my eyes. Only the grace of God has come in to convict me, to put me on the straight path, to give me eyes to see and ears to hear. Only the grace of God. Friends, Our hearts need to be filled with love. Don't misunderstand what I'm saying. Because I'm not saying that we should ignore judgment and turn a blind eye toward injustice and ungodly behavior. I'm not saying that at all. Some people are come to harvest. My uh, um, 
one of my theology professors had a dozen or more stories for every class, and he was a great student of the history of revivals, and he was a thoroughgoing Arminian, so far in the Arminian camp that uh, five-point Calvinists were off the radar. But anyway, he uh, he talked about this one uh, revivalist preacher evangelist in Texas uh, during the Great Sawdust Trail revivals, and they asked him, "How come you carry a gun? You don't you believe that God's going to take care of you, and you're not going to die till your time comes?" And he said, "Yeah, I do, but I might meet an engine whose time has come." Take that however you may want to. It, it, it is not intended as a racist comment, I promise you. Just a part of American history. Right or wrong, indifferent, whatever. It is what it is. But, my point is, I'm not saying that we should ignore justice. That we should ignore crime that we should tolerate ISIS. I'm not saying that. But what I am saying is, we need to recognize that it is only by God's grace that we're not in that camp. It is only by His mercy and love that we have been saved. And with hearts full of love, God loves sinners. And He wants them to come to a knowledge of the truth. And we have a, a moral, a spiritual, and a divine obligation to share the love of Jesus Christ with everyone who will listen. As we see the end times approaching, our hearts should be full of compassion for the ungodly. Their time is short, and hell is forever. And there is no second chance. It is appointed to man once to die, and after that the judgment. And we have the opportunity to share the grace of God before the decision cannot be undone. We need to be motivated by that, friends. And remember that even in judgment, God shows mercy. And even in the early days of the last, last years of the planet, God will demonstrate His love by sparing the majority to be able to have a chance to turn in faith. Father, I pray this morning that You would open our eyes to see the truth, that we would be motivated by Your love, as you are motivated by your love, that we would desire to see all people saved and come to a knowledge of the truth, that we would be bold to speak, that we would take every opportunity to share the message of Jesus Christ before it's eternally too late, and to realize that that hateful or that broken person, or that addict that causes us so much grief may become our closest brother or sister 
when they turn to you in faith and you change their lives dramatically. For once we were on that path and you have changed us and we give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen.